today's episode is a great one. The Ryan Russillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. It's brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. The unexpected. Uh, Ivy League canceling fall sports. I don't know. I don't know what's to be unexpected anymore, honestly, when it comes to some of this stuff. Scary stuff out there. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. The plan is Kevin O'Connor. We're going to talk some NBA stuff you may have forgotten about. And then uh, my new favorite show. I got two favorite shows on television right now. It's Yellowstone and Hightown. Uh, more of you probably heard about Yellowstone, but Hightown is really cool. It's on Stars. The season's just about to finish up, and the creator, showrunner, producer, Rebecca Cutter, she's an awesome story, and she is going to join us and talk about her show. So we got two different things we're doing, and at the end, trust me on this one, you're going to want to hear this week's life advice. So we're going to kind of sprinkle one of those in most of the pods, like one. I don't know that I'll do three, because it takes me forever to answer one anyway, but people do seem to like them, so that is the plan. Okay, he's got a podcast here with Chris Vernon, and he also covers the NBA, the written word as well, Kevin O'Connor. Okay, Kevin O'Connor joins us. I was texting with him a little bit last night, just because I feel like there's going to be things that pop up where you go... Oh, and even in my prep and trying to get ready for the relaunch of the season, there have been a few things that I come across. Where I go, okay, that's right. That's a, that's a real thing there. Um, before we get to any of that stuff, because we kind of have this, this concept of like three things that we may have forgotten. As I was going through the teams, I usually like to find a team, Kevin, that I think may be over it. But I can't really find that. It still feels very new, whether it's Milwaukee's resentment of, after last year different personnel pieces on a lot of top East teams, Toronto motivated post Kawhi, which I think, you know, to, to most people, this is still pretty amazing. They've done this. Even when I'll talk to teams, they'll include Toronto as like a real contender. And I'm surprised how often I hear that doesn't mean they're wrong. I'm just, I'm surprised I hear it that often. And then with both LA teams, these are still newer versions of this. So I don't have this team. That's really good. That I feel like is going to show up to Orlando and go, eh, this sucks and completely underperformed. That team exists. I just don't know necessarily who it is, and it's certainly not because they've had so much success that they're not as motivated as they normally would be. And with the variables this year, with coronavirus, with them being at Disney World, there's so much more variance with what could happen. It's almost sort of hard. Like If you're putting power rankings together, which I'll, I'll be doing on the site, it's, I'm looking at these teams, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, who, who's going to decide not going to show up last minute? Who's going to test positive when they arrive there? Which team is not going to deal well with being on campus? It, it, it's all these factors that make it so much harder to predict the head with exactly what you said. Like with Houston, for example, I'm going to mention them with you know our topic today. But like, I have no idea what to expect from them. With Harden and Westbrook, they're a team that I've liked a lot for years. But with this new situation, is it going to be a good thing playing at a neutral site? I don't know. It, it, it's going to make this... People talk about asterisks for this NBA season. Every year has an asterisk in its own way with injuries and whatever else. Um, and I don't buy that asterisk talk at all, but it's certainly going to be different this year time around. Yeah, I mean, look, you may not do it. And people come to anybody that does this for a living to be like, hey, give me your picks. But I keep getting back to that. Well, I don't know. I don't know if Harden is more motivated because of playoff failures or Westbrook are those are those two guys like this is awesome like let's let's take advantage like people are really looking at Houston I've noticed this and I'd be curious to see what happens with your power rankings but they jump like five spots 
in the ESPN power rankings from the end of the season. I mean, they're still a six seed, okay? Now, they probably match up really well against Denver. They've beaten Utah. You worry about Utah's entire thing. But we're really talking about four months ago, four plus months ago. And like, what does any of that stuff mean? It's it's really, really hard to go, well, because I felt this way about you in early March. I mean, the whole Capella trade thing, like they had a really good record. They were 10 and two after they traded him. They lost four in a row. They got smashed by the Clippers. They won their last game against Minnesota. What does any of that mean? And I could also see a version of it where Harden's like, ah, this sucks. You know, like that's that he has that in him where he's like, ah, this sucks. I don't want to do it. I did read the article talking about how he's doing yoga. Maybe that's why they jumped up five spots in the ESPN power rankings. But I can do this (laughs) exercise basically with every single team where I think that's what kind of leads me back to the Lakers a lot is that at least I know LeBron is probably looking at this as another chance in a closing window to get a title. I can't imagine that he's not more motivated than everybody else. Oh, I mean, I think LeBron is always more motivated than anybody else when it comes to playoff situations. And, you know, with Houston or any team for that matter, we're just using Houston as an example here, but it's true for any team. We just don't know how they're going to deal with these extremely unusual circumstances. We don't know. And you're, you're, the way you feel mentally is going to impact the way you perform on the court. So James Harden has been getting in better shape. There's a great article written by Kelly Ego on The Athletic a couple of weeks back about him being in the best shape of his life, and he certainly looked like it. But how does that translate when you're stuck at Disney World, you know, and it's been six weeks, you're there already, and it's getting into the first round of the postseason? We just don't know. So it's harder than ever don't know. to right. make your yeah. pick. That, that's, that's it. It's just we don't know. All right, I want to get to the asterisk talk for a second there, but the best shape of your life stuff. Like, is it good that Jokic is down 40 pounds? I know Jamal Murray was saying he's moving around. He looks great. He's super athletic. I don't know. Like, why is why is Jokic dropping 40 pounds a good thing? I, I'm is that is the real okay? number? 40 pounds? They're is saying that, that I read real? this morning 40. I don't think that's even true, by the way. He, for um, what it's worth, last season I reported that he was 275 at one point. And he definitely does not look 275 right now. No, he doesn't, but that could be just the cut of the 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 zip ups. I don't know. Um, he was big at the beginning of Slim the year. Slim fit clothes, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe it's forty pounds from the beginning of the year when he showed up. And the thing is, he was still putting up numbers. He just looked totally out of shape at the beginning of the year. And I do think that every superstar has their own beat writer that is obligated every six months to write that this person is in the best shape of their lives. (laughs) I think they're like, once you're a top 20 player, the NBA just assigns you a guy. It's like, Hey, this is going to be the person that just says you've never hit the gym harder. And just so you know, we can use a lot of the stuff we used from six months ago. We're just going to print it up again. It'll be like the beginning of the season, the beginning of the playoffs. It's just, it's part of, it's part of the CBA. A lot of people don't know about it. Well, I mean, nowadays players can do that themselves on Instagram and everything else can post videos, pictures, all that. All right. Um, you know what I did like? Because you're right. No matter who wins this, they're going to get trashed. It's just the way it works. It's what's going to happen. I mean, I've said about real NBA champs um, going through it the normal way. So I don't mean to be real or fake because this isn't fake. I want this title to be appreciated. It's not going to be. It's just not because it's just not the way we're not nice about these things. There's 29 fan bases that are going to be mad that one of these other fan bases wins a title. So they're going to knock it. But yeah. The chances are there's going to be a couple really good players on one of these really good teams that test positive, and the public is going to have a really hard time processing all of that, and we likely will just go straight express lane to negativity. 
that's absolutely going to happen. It's already happened. I mean, I remember, what was it, three, four weeks ago, you, you turn on first take, and all it is is if the Lakers win the championship, is LeBron going to get an asterisk for this? And th- the way I look at it is, even if a star player were to test positive, this is these are the circumstances we've all been dealt. This is what we're all dealing with here. That could happen to anybody, star or not. A star can get hurt and get stepped on and be out for the rest of the postseason. It happens, and it has happened. And we saw it with Zaza Pachulia and Kawhi Leonard. You could say, did the Golden State Warriors deserve an asterisk that year because Kawhi got hurt? Maybe. You could say that for their because they advanced after that. Um, and the Spurs got hurt, but that's just what happens. That one I always push back a little bit on, not because I love the Warriors, but because it was game one, and the Warriors at least had shown us a pattern of being pretty good. So I know Doc Rivers. I know a lot of the guys, like the, when the Clippers were the most hated ever, when every team hated them, and Doc was like, oh, a lot of the guys the Warriors play get hurt. And you're like, come on, man. Sure. That's the thing, though. It's like you could pick something from each postseason and say, Absolutely. Oh, deserve an asterisk for that. And, and this year, coronavirus is something we're all dealing with. Every team's dealing with on on that Disney campus. So if a guy tests positive as a star player, I mean, we'll see how I feel in the moment. Maybe I'll feel differently uh, at the time if that actually happens. If it's game six and Giannis tests positive in the Eastern Conference Finals, maybe I'll feel different. But it's it's the situation. And every team has to deal with it. Every player has to deal with it. And for teams, you know, in conversations I've had, it's going to be treated like as an injury. You're out two weeks. You're out two weeks. It's like no different than if you pull your hamstring. I mean, it's obviously different because it's a serious virus that's spreading throughout the world. But from a strictly basketball perspective, it's just the situation that they're unfortunately, we're all unfortunately in right now. And so if that's different you know, in terms of asterisks or not, We'll see how this plays out. Hopefully, and this is you know true for the whole league and all the coaches, everybody there. Hopefully, they do an awesome drop at this, and there's no you know outbreaks afterwards when they arrive on campus. And that happens this week. Like FC Dallas with MLS, they had what four or five po- positive tests on their team after getting to Disney World. All right, get uh, after arriving there two weeks ago. So hopefully that doesn't happen here, and we'll find that out sometime next week once this testing really starts rolling. I felt like there was a marketing pivot, though, where it then went from, you know, how much will this champion be questioned? How much will they be discredited to actually this is the most difficult championship to win because of the <laughs> mental challenge. Like there was and I'm yeah. not even knocking it. I'm just saying there was a real kind of funny pivot like Austin Rivers had said it then Giannis had said it and was like, actually, this one's going to be the hardest. But it's just we already know what's going to happen. People are brutal about this stuff with with all sorts of different things. I mean, Derek Rose is like. Coronavirus is like 10 Derrick Rose ACL tears, you know, that when when he went down with the Bulls almost 10 years ago, Bill even brought up like, hey, what does that really mean for LeBron? I was like, come on, man, really? Um, <laughs> so I I wonder if you had Giannis asymptomatic test positive game six NBA finals, if they'd be like, well, he looks fine. <laughs> I hope not. I I hope not. I hope not, Ryan. I'll just leave that one alone. I'll just leave that yeah. one alone. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's do three things we may have forgotten in the months away from the NBA. I'll let you go first. All right. I'll, I'll, since I mentioned the Rockets earlier, uh, the Rockets so traded much Rockets. Clint Capella. Uh, yeah. They did. Uh, I mean, with, with they, they traded Clint Capella. And I know with Houston, you know, we, we already talked about this. It's not that I forgot necessarily. It's just 
at the time the deal happened and in the weeks afterwards when they're playing pj tucker and robert covington at the five and four a lot i'm thinking to myself like we're about to see one of the greatest small ball experiments ever and that just sort of has sort of faded away you know from the center of my focus with the nba season comeback now but now it's starting to pick back up for me and i'm just thinking about the potential matchups for them and what houston is actually going to do you mentioned denver they all have always had Clint Capella as a primary defender against Jokic. But if you're having PJ Tucker or a smaller guy or Covington having to defend Jokic, I am just really excited to see how Houston is actually going to do this thing. How they're, if they're just going to stick to their small ball ways here and play a bunch of guys six, nine and under, or if they're going to roll out Tyson Chandler in a certain, certain matchups and certain situations and play with a, uh, the rim running big, that they have in the past with Capella or Nene and a bunch of other guys. Yeah, there's math that tells you that four-man unit with Harden, Westbrook, PJ, and Covington is really successful. I think the fifth guy that's shockingly, well, maybe not shockingly because it could be limited possessions, but Daniel House I think is the best fifth member of that stuff. Um, Denver played Houston four times. Um, Houston was better, but... Harden didn't play in one of the losses. I, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with some of these results because it's now completely different and we're so far removed from it. And Capella was on those teams too. He was on yeah. the floor with Houston in those matches. I mean, these, right. I mean, these are, when you're going back to October, like I'm really supposed to go, well, you know, they got them in game one. I mean, I don't know what any of that <laughs> stuff means. So that matchup, I would think Houston would be okay with Denver. But then if they get Utah, I mean, we're still talking about a Houston team that was a six seed when the season ended. One of the ones that I keep reading about is when they beat the Lakers when they went really small. I feel like the Lakers just got totally freaked out. Like if they had to play them again the next day, they would have killed them. But in the moment, they're like, what the hell is going on here? We're so They were just so thrown off that I felt like that's why the Lakers lost that game more so than that they just were incapable of matching up against this small Rockets team. Sure. And, and and that's sort of the point here, like that you made earlier about how much does any of that mean? Uh, probably yeah. less so than it does in a normal year when those October, November games don't necessarily mean much in April, May and June. And for that, you know, Lakers Rockets matchup, I believe that was at Staples Center. Uh, it was that Rockets victory. And for Houston, that's what I'm excited to see, because. They have this, you know, training camp here for a couple weeks ahead of the season. What can D'Antoni install that's going to have them be an adaptable team? Or are they going to continue and just do what they've always done? A lot of high pick and roll, you know, uh, constantly playing small. Or are they going to have new wrinkles in order to counterattack to what other teams are doing when they're actually game planning during a a series? Because you're right. If the Lakers faced them the next day, they probably would have come back with something different and done something different against Houston because there are exploitable holes that a small actual small team has. People talk all about small ball. So there's a lot of lengthy players in small lineups and Houston has some of them, but they do lack height and they do lack size and weight, which the Lakers do have with AD, Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee, or even just playing AD at the five. That Clippers blowout after they'd gone on that big run, that 10-2 run without Capella, that Clippers blowout felt like, oh, wait. Like, I think this might be mm. more what it is. The Knicks blowout didn't make any sense. They had that weird Phoenix loss in there, too. I think somebody was missing in that Phoenix game. But um, 
I don't want to do 30 minutes. Of I don't know with you, but I, I constantly feel like that's what we keep getting back to. All right, let me do something a little <laughs> bit different then, because I'll ask you it this way. Is Giannis actually just a cooler James Harden? Now, I've been of the belief that there's a bigger separation between regular season and postseason basketball the last few years than maybe ever before, and that you become reliant on some of these styles that just play out a little bit differently in the playoffs. I know that people have been always saying that, hey, tougher defense, less position, all these things. I actually think that separation has grown. And when I look at Giannis specifically, some of the numbers are insane. A plus 16 net rating per 100 possessions with Giannis on the floor this year. But with him off the floor, they've been plus four. So you're like, all right, that's pretty good. Because last year in the playoffs, the Bucs were a minus 10 when Giannis sat. Now, the reason I mentioned Harden. Now, let's look at usage rate. Big usage rate guy. I feel like usage rate explained a lot of the spikes in some of these performances, but nobody ever seems to really want to believe me. Um, Troy Daniels, number one, by the way, for those keeping score at home, did qualify. He is not part of this conversation, Kevin. <laughs> um, Luka's number one in usage rate at 38.5. Giannis is number two in the NBA at 37.1. Harden's right there at number three, 36.7. Harden last year was like at 40. Anytime you're over 40, I think you should write thank you notes to the rest of your teammates every month or so. So the reason I bring this up and on <laughs> off defensively, it's not even close. So I'm not going to do that. But when you run this style that is so connected to this one person doing this thing, that's so impressive, whether it's Giannis finding a way to get to the rim, people collapsing and kicking out to an array of shooters or it hardens not only his amazing shooting ability, his driving ability, his availability, his passing is always been incredible. Uh, I think the reads are so locked in his head. I'm not saying the reads are easy, but they're easy for Harden because he knows every single. It's like a quarterback that's been in the same offense forever. And even though there are different variations, of what Houston does, he just his reads are perfect. Um, do you think that there's a part of you that worries about Milwaukee the way I worry about Houston going? Yeah, I understand who Giannis is. I, I get all of these parts of it, but there's a real regular season dependency on him for the other four guys that have not proven it with Milwaukee's very short run with this group but in a lot of the way same ways we've seen some of the disappointment with different Houston rosters in some ways I'm with you um I, I've written about this in the past in regards to Westbrook you know those guys that have those super high usage percentages tend to fail in the postseason and and usually fail early um but a lot, at least historically, a lot of those guys had to do it with this Milwaukee team. To your point, like he doesn't have to do it necessarily. So being so focused on one guy, it's concerning. Um, but I will say this, the the difference between this year and last year, you mentioned how great they are with him on the floor. They're still pretty good without him. The fact that with Middleton, with Bledsoe being a bit better this year than he was last year, with some of their younger guys, whether it's DiVincenzo or some of their older guys like George Hill, being able to keep that team afloat without him suggests to me that if they're in a situation in which Giannis is really getting so much defensive attention that they gutter on stuff through others, that they can and with this Milwaukee team, they are so great on the defensive end of the floor, number one in the league by far over anybody else that gives me more confidence to them. In addition to the fact that they do have some other guys get that can help out. If Giannis isn't able to really run the show because of a certain, because of a certain way that he's being defended. So this is a little bit different than other instances where it's like with Harden or with like Westbrook in the past with OKC, if that guy was contained, what else do they have? Milwaukee does have other answers. Okay. I like what you did there. All right. Your next one. 
Next one. Let's go with um, a bench guy here. Did you forget he was on a team? (laughs) With Avery Bradley sitting out, Rondo will likely be taking more minutes. I kind of forgot just how bad Rondo was this season. Uh, Obviously, low shooting numbers, average only seven points per game. One thing that I found this morning looking this up, when LeBron is on the court without Rondo, the Lakers assisted over half their baskets. Over half. But with Rondo on the floor, that drops to about a third. Ball movement's worse with Rondo on the floor, which is part of what has made this Lakers team good despite having superstars. Ball movement with stars, AD and LeBron. And their offensive rating with LeBron and Rondo drops by six points per 100 possessions rather than just having LeBron on the court. So you're thinking about Rondo's going to have more minutes, more time on the floor, likely with Bradley out and his shooting issues, even though he shoots 39% on spot up threes, defenses don't defend him. They don't worry about him. The number isn't what you're looking at in percentage as much as amount of attempts. That's what is indicative of the respect the defense is giving a player. So Rondo's going to play and they're going to have to rely on him. And you see all this hype this past week about Rondo supposedly looking rejuvenated at Lakers practices. But people realize like Rondo will Rondo's never going to be fat a day in his life. Like people get that, right? <laughs> well, yeah, like that's he, what I'm saying. Takes, it's he like, takes I, his shirt off and it's like, oh my God, he's ready to go. <laughs> I, I'm not okay. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it until I know you see him at your gym all the time, right? Working out. So you know that he's always going to be ripped with Rondo. I'm not buying it until I actually see him starting to give effort on the defensive end of the floor, which he hasn't done in years. And the off- and the offensive end for the Lakers, look, they're they're my pick to win the final. So I'm not, this isn't changing things for me. But the fact is, is that with Rondo, I do wonder if he's eventually going to be somewhat of a weight on LeBron and what they want to do with that offense. And will they eventually go to an Alex Caruso? Will they throw Quinn Cook out there, even though he's Quinn Cook? So with Rondo, I, I I will be interested to see if we do get some sort of playoff Rondo that elevates his play and thus makes the Lakers even more of a of a strong bet to win the finals than they already are. You know what's funny about Rondo on offense? Because you're right about defense. I felt like he's looked really active and good and engaged, like physically. You know, he's had some moments where I go, wait, what? Where, where was this guy last week? Like with the Pelicans. <laughs> He turned, he looked oh, yeah. like a completely different guy in a very short amount of time. So there are moments at the beginning of the year, and then I, you would watch it and be like, yeah, but he's not playing well. It doesn't matter. I have a quick little follow-up. I already know the answer. The answer is probably no, but I wonder if there was any part of the Lakers that if Dwight had said, I'm not going to come play in the bubble, where they would have been like, awesome. Now we can just play Anthony Davis <laughs> at the five more. <laughs> I mean, they're going to be doing that regardless more in the postseason. The but they keep is, saying they're not going to, which that, is the, this is the yeah, dumbest little drama ball. ever. Ball. I think they do it because they want him just make sure he's as happy as possible because he doesn't like doing it. Um, but they're better. They're just so much better with him at the five. They're going to be closing games with him at the five, right? They have to be. And that's why I thought of the Dwight thing, even though, yes, I understand the answer would be, especially in these circumstances, have as many available bodies. Dwight has been a massive, massive upgrade versus the Dwight that we thought that they were going to get. Oh, but He's been so good. Deserves a yeah, lot of credit for that, too, to accept absolutely. the role for really. I wish he had done this, you know, five years ago. Yeah. And no, started rolling was, to the rim instead of posting up. But it's nice to see. Yeah. Uh, LeBron also makes his world as easy as possible because everybody collapses. He and JaVale just clean up on this stuff. But but I couldn't help but think if he had said, hey, <laughs> I'm not coming, if Vogel and his staff go, okay, now we can play. Hey, sorry, Anthony, we have to play it to five way more now, but it's not going to happen. 
No, of, of course, and, and that would get that would make it easier for them to get more skill on the floor as well. What you know, whether I you know mentioned Caruso and Cook, uh, some of the smaller guys on their team, and and not that you necessarily want to play Quinn Cook. I'm just saying in a scenario where maybe Rondo's not doing so hot out there, and you do need to improve your shooting. Curious to see what that Lakers closing group will be, um, but again, it's not really gonna. I don't know that it really matters as much with the way those two guys have played. I don't know what else to do here. I got a little Celtics one, but I feel like I've already done that a little bit. Um, the blame Horford Philadelphia campaign. You know what? This one surprised me. I'll do one that really surprised me because I was trying to find somebody on a team that I went like, oh, that was kind of my Tobias Harris joke that I tweeted out where it was like, Tobias Harris is on the Sixers. Uh, <laughs> but that didn't really pick up. Miami's actually, because I was doing a, a Miami Sixers thing, okay? And Miami, I think Pelton had the number. And it was a great number. Miami's played more zone uh, defensive zone possessions against the Sixers than like 20 teams have played zone all year long. Hmm. So like just to understand that in three games, Good Miami's sad. played more zone against Philly than a third, two thirds of the league have actually even played all season long. And we know that the offensive combo of Embiid, Simmons, and then Horford, because Philly people want to act like um, Horford's the only reason why there are some issues there. Uh, that that's a net negative, which is still pretty fascinating offensively. Defensively, it's really good. But Miami's middle of the pack in defensive efficiency, that surprised me. I was surprised to see Miami, this Heat team that's been a lot of fun and a bit of a surprise, to see them 14th in defensive efficiency with Spo, his system, and some of their personnel. Hmm. That, that is quite surprising, especially with Bam Adebayo turning into the player that he has. I mean, both ends of the floor, great defensive I, player. I feel like I bored you a little bit with that one. Like I closed, I didn't, well, I closed with a cover song or something. Sorry. <laughs> no, zone defense is exciting. <laughs> it's, we're, it seeing is. Team, we're seeing teams do it more and more. And, and it could be something like a breaking ball uh, for a team in the postseason. We're seeing the Raptors do it more often. Nick Nurse, I mean, he's not, not afraid to throw it out. He did it in the finals last year going boxing one against Stephen Curry. We could see it more often this year. Box and one. That's that was the ultimate ultimate respect. All right, your last one. Last one. Um, since I just mentioned the Raptors, I'll, I'll I'll go with them. I sort of forgot that they were number two in defense this year. I knew there they were top go. ten, top five, but number two, uh, I I kind of forgot that. And they were fifth last season, so they've actually been better this year. And I, I think one of the reasons why it might have slipped my mind here is because so much of the focus over the course of the season was about Pascal Siakam early in the year, putting up MVP candidate level numbers, even though he fizzled a little bit. Yeah, it did a little much better. Yeah. Yeah. Still really good. Yeah. I mean, he was so off the charts those first, I don't know, a few weeks of the, you know, I mean, the MVP thing was a real deal, but like I'd said to kind of at the beginning, I, I don't know if I'm wrong by pushing back on, NBA guys when we're just sitting around talking and I go there's just a few of them where I, I'm like wow another guy's including you know hey Lakers Clippers Bucks Raptors and I'm like what because everybody seems to be very hot on the Celtics right now and I would be hotter on them if I had seen them all play together more and the whole season despite some really yeah. good numbers from Boston I don't know I imagine Kemba's fine he didn't look great after the turn again this is over four months ago but the small point guard thing in the playoffs um, does scare me. That's it, real. It, it's it a is real, real thing, especially yeah. in defense. And, and and what you just mentioned about we haven't seen Boston play together with Toronto. That's one of the reasons why I think so many people 
are hot on them right now is because they do have continuity. They do have chemistry. They do have experience. And this was a team, obviously they're worse without Kawhi. goes without saying. No kidding. But (laughs) this, this defense still, they beat teams up, man. They have so much length and size can play big with two bigs with Ibaka and, and Gasol, or they can go with just one of them. They can even go super small if they want to put Boucher and Siakam at the four and five if they Boucher really want. stretch so, the floor on you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like Toronto can play any different type of way they want to. And you're thinking about just sort of bring this back to the beginning. We don't really know how this is going to work out at a neutral site here. And a team that does have this chemistry and experience together, maybe they have an edge over a team like the Celtics, who on paper are a better team. You think about what Jason Tatum was the last month and a half or so of the season. Think about what they could be with Kemba Walker being fully healthy, not dealing with that knee problem he had. On paper, Boston is better because they have that scoring, those star scorers and a really good defense. But Toronto does have what a lot of teams don't have here, and that's experience and chemistry together. Yeah, and like we did that thing with J.J. months ago where he mentioned how amazing Toronto was defensively on their closeouts and and defending rotation, and I was like, no, no, keep going. Like, tell me exactly, because there's always these moments where if you're lucky enough to talk to somebody that's really doing this for a living, and I think you're going to agree, there's awe when Toronto was talked about with Nurse. Like, like it makes me go, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing a good enough job understanding everything they're doing because this guy's a lifer and this is a 30-year career or this is J.J. Redick who's played in the league over 10 years and he's like laughing a little bit about how amazing they are at some of these defensive concepts. And it pisses me off when I'm like, oh, I wish I wish I recognized this as quickly as you guys did. Sure. And, you know, I interviewed David Griffin for the Pelicans video I did uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he brought up Toronto. I mean, obviously, everybody it's wants all to the, be, time. Like, the champions. <laughs> yeah, everybody not- brings them up. And he, I mean, he and it's not me, just because like, they won, right? And and you would agree, no, like exactly. this isn't just because they just won the title. Go ahead. It's because of the way they did it. Yeah, it's, it's because of the way they they won with size on the defensive end of the floor. It's because of the way Nick Nurse coaches, and even during the regular season, just always comes with a different game plan. It's almost more like an NFL team, week to week, game to game for the NBA. It's very unusual. Most coaches tend to stick with their system over the course of the regular season, and they roll with it. Very little game plan and game to game. But the Raptors do it differently, and that's because of Nick Nurse and that staff there. I mean, people, like you said, it's not just because they won the championship. This isn't like with Golden State and people are like, oh, we should go small. Let's do what they do with Draymond Green. This is Let's get that. two Hall of Fame shooters in the backcourt. You know? uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> with I Toronto, love that it's one. like, oh, maybe, maybe with some, there's, there's something different here that, I, that the Raptors have sort of innovated when it comes to game planning because of Nick Nurse. Good stuff. You can follow him at Kevin O'Connor NBA and um, promote whatever else you got going on here at the ringer started a new video series on the ringers YouTube channel called the restart last week. We did a video about the Pelicans and the postseason playing tournament. And this week we talked about the wizards bill dropped out and talked about how this is a team that right now nobody wants to watch, but in the coming year or so, we're going to find out if they're going to be the next contender or the next team to blow it up with Bradley Beal turning into the star that he has. And uh, you guys, you and Verno have the podcast coming out which day? Tuesdays and Fridays, me and Verno. All right. Sounds good, man. Uh, So check out those podcasts, and we'll uh, probably talk to you once the season gets started. Thanks, man. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Thanks to KOC. Let's talk about Mac Weldon, because I wanted to. Oh, no, it's also an ad. But hey, uh, 
that's cool because they've been on my mind. Mac Weldon makes the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you'll ever wear. Their mission is to make sure that all your basics and beyond are smartly designed with premium fabrics and shopping for them is easy and convenient. And you know what? Joggers are in right now. It depends kind of on your age. If your body type, if you're hitting it right, you know, some of the different stuff that you see girls doing on Instagram, don't be afraid, guys, to do some of that stuff. You throw in a pair of joggers, you're going to hear compliments. It's just math. But Mack Weldon brings it on the jogger side, and you don't have to take out a, a home equity loan. That's the other part that's nice. And you know what I like? I like their T-shirts because sometimes I just want to throw on something that's not um, compression. Although, again, shout out to any guy that's wearing a compression tank to um Kroger's but what I like about the Mack Weldon shirts is I'll just throw one of those on to work out and just it kind of feels like you know just getting back to the basics and it's just so comfortable so Mack Weldon uh they even offer a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial which means they eliminate odor they want you to be comfortable so if you don't like your first pair of underwear you can keep it and they'll refund you no questions asked you just keep the underwear say hey it's not for me so what's What's stopping you from just doing an order right now? All Mac Weldon products are great for working out, going to work, going on dates, and just everyday life. To hear that, guys? Dates. Like, hey, what am I doing this weekend? Well, I wasn't going to go out on a date, but my Mac Weldon Henley showed up. So <laughs> look who's look who's grabbing an, uh, an Aperol spritzer. The folks at Mac Weldon have even created their own totally free loyalty program called Weldon Blue. Level one. Oh, damn it. I can't. I even I don't have access to this. Level one gets you free shipping for life. And once you've reached level two by spending $200, Mac Weldon will start giving you 20% off. I'm having a hard time even reading this. I'm so excited. 20% off every order for the next year. So here's how you do it. For 20% off your first order, you don't even have to be level two. Visit MacWeldon.com. Enter the promo code Ryan Rosillo. That's going to be a tricky one for you spellers out there. That's R-Y-E-N. That's right. My parents did it. R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O. So that's Ryan Rosillo. You go to MacWeldon.com, promo code Ryan Rosillo for 20% off your first order. I've mentioned the show Hightown before. I, I just really like it. It plays a lot of the, you know, the beats that you would expect in television dramas on premium. Uh, but this just works. It works better. It works different. It's just, um, it, it obviously, and I'll explain it with Rebecca, um, who is a show creator. Again, Rebecca Cutter, Hightown show creator. The finale airs on Stars this Sunday. That's 8 Eastern, uh, also 5 Pacific if you're out on the West Coast. And um, takes place in Provincetown on the Cape, close to where I grew up. So that's probably another reason why I like it. So we're going to talk some television. Rebecca Cutter. Okay, it's one of my um, favorite new shows on Stars. It's High Town. I kind of thought there was a chance I was going to be biased and really like it because it took place out on the Cape and for the fact that there's just a lot of stuff about uh, the Cape and Islands that people don't understand and the creator. And uh, somebody I'm really excited. I've been really excited to do this interview with her. It's Rebecca Cutter. All right, let's start with the idea. And I know you're working on, on Gotham and some other shows as a writer where it goes from, hey, I have this idea in my head. And now I'm actually going to write it down. So take us kind of through that process and then eventually to the actual pitch part of it. So I was working on Gotham. I was feeling I had kind of fall, not fallen into that job like luck, but I had worked on The Mentalist with Bruno Heller, who was the creator of The Mentalist and Gotham, and he had taken me with him. And those were my first two jobs. So I had never gone out for staffing season, which is a big deal out here if you're 
a staff writer, you know, there's sort of a season and you go out and you try and take a bunch of meetings and get your new job. So I didn't really have a pilot sample. So I guess that's the hacky answer is that like I needed something. Um, but the answer of like where the actual sort of spark came from, I mean, this story, the sort of the kind of thematic bones of this story has been something I've been working on for a very long time. The idea of this sort of looks like, you know, bottoming out elky party girl who stumbles into a mystery and kind of through inve this investigation kind of saves herself. That was like a theme, a grain of an idea I've been working on for a long time. Um, and then my father-in-law was a fishery service agent. You know, I grew up going to Provincetown and married to a man from Cape Cod, like, you know, sobriety, bunch of those elements. So that was also the back, background noise. Um, but then I just got the idea one day driving of Jackie Quinones, this, you know, sort of hard partying lesbian fishery service who's a year rounder in Provincetown. And from there, I was like, I'll figure out a fucking mystery. That like, but once I had her, I was like, that's a show. Um, but I didn't pitch it to anyone. I just wrote it. Um, and I just wrote it thinking like, I'm just going to leave it all on the page. And this is just to have a sample to show my voice. And I'm not, I didn't think in my wildest dreams, I was ever going to sell it and see it on TV. So when I finally gave it to my agents at CAA, they were, I was like, here's, this is just like a little sample thing I came up with so you can get me my next job. And they're like, oh no, we can sell this. Um, so then I was like, oh, that was like a very pleasant surprise to hear that. Um, wow. Good news. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. I was like, okay. So you say, let's see. Um, yeah. And then they sent it out to producers and Jerry Bruckheimer TV read it and, you know, Christiane Reed there like went over the moon for it and it was their first premium cable thing. And they, she just really wanted to do it. And then we went out and did like, it's called the drop off pitch, which is just like a 10 minute pitch. And then you give them the script afterwards to read. So, uh, there's probably maybe more on the pitch thing, but I, I want to stay with the idea first because I think we all understand, and, and you more so than, than people that are just consumers of this, that there are certain beats, there's almost certain rules, and there are rules because it seems to be what the audience consistently wants. Like when you really try to bend things, and I'm going to try all these different things, and you're usually the feedback you get would be like, this doesn't really make any sense. There's a reason there's three acts. There's a reason there's all these different yeah. rules. But with you going with Provincetown, for those that don't know, is is basically in the summer it's a, it's it's like a gay escape it it just is i remember as a young kid the first time like i walked through it i was like whoa like what's going on here in the summer but the fact that you have the local element to it which is something that i've always had to explain like every my entire life i am from Martha's Vineyard massive eye roll I think we have butlers in a yacht parked out front and you're like you just don't understand like yes the real estate is worth more but it's just the year round part of it the winter time I'm so glad you did this because even though, you know, the pilot takes place at the beginning of the carnival in the, in the, the tourist season, there's just so much more to these areas. And yeah. it's like people don't ever want to believe those other nine to eight months exists. Right. Yeah, that was really important to me. I mean, I think and I grew up, my parents had a place there. We went every summer. I've been going since the 70s to Provincetown. But then, you know, I married a guy from Brewster and. And he always gets mad because he hears me say that. And he's like, you make it sound like I introduced you to like the seedy underbelly of K-pop, which he certainly did. And his parents live in a nice place. You know, it's beautiful, but it's completely different going there in the winter. And it's frankly, I mean, it's a little depressing. It's isolated. It's cold. You know, everything's shut down. It's not the same place. You know, this employment is very seasonal. Um, 
people make all their money in this. A lot of people make all their money in the summer and then have nothing really to do all winter. And I remember, I, I mean, my parents were in the field of alcoholism. So I think I, but I remember always hearing growing up that like alcoholism spiked, like it's really bad in the winter. And there was always like a heroin problem in the winter and like the fishing fleet. So there was a lot of, I think that, um, that dichotomy of like this most beautiful place in the world, this wealthy touristy place that's a party versus the sort of bleaker other side of it. That was a very important thematic thing for me, you know, to, that we're exploring both sides of the thing. Yeah. I remember I took one winter off from, from college and I decided to stay in work construction and I worked a door at a place and the male female ratio is, is atrocious too, because it's a lot of construction guys and there was like one hostess from New Bedford, and I thought like ten guys were going to murder each other just to ask her out because it was like the, the <laughs> ratio was the ratio was so bad. Okay, so you have um, you have Jackie, the main character, in your head. I've heard her described as this female Don Draper. I will admit that because of a lot of the rules, and a lot of the rules are being, I would say, boundary wise, are being broken and have been for years now for people that are out in this part of the country that understand the industry more, but you're thinking, okay, I'm going to have a cop, but she's not even a cop. And then you make her marine fishery, which I think was really important because if she was a cop, then it would be different. So when you started trying to make this powerful female, like non-traditional character, do you think that the industry is in, in this place where it's like, that's great. It's so different. I want this. Or it's like, Hey, great concept, but how many people are actually still going to watch something that's being presented so different from so many other different TV shows? Right. You know, I try never to like second guess what the industry is going to think of something or like even the audience, just because for me, I'll get really stuck in my own head. So I just saw her clear as day. I'm like, well, that's my marching orders. Like I have to just write that character. Um, So I, I mean, everybody that read it, well, I won't say everybody that read it loved it because only one network tried to buy it. So obviously you know, eight other ones didn't like it, but, or didn't like it enough. But I never heard that as a criticism. Everyone always said like, this character feels really fresh. This, you know, this, I, it, it was never, it was never discussed like, well, could she just be straight? Or like, well, could it be a guy? I mean, it was never, that was never the response. So I think people were ready when they were ready. Um, and also because it was a spec script, it was already written. It's different when you're selling an idea, I think, because then everybody thinks they can, they have, they have, they have two cents to add, right, right? right? But when it's a script and it works, it's much harder to just give a note to give a note because if it's already working, you're not going to fuck with it too much. The other thing that I've noticed is that I find myself having sympathy for the bad people and despising the good people, um, <laughs> and that's not easy to pull off. And, you know, you don't want to sit there and feel like sorry for the the gangster. Um, mm-hmm. And and the way you kind of have the cops balance each other out, like there's there's good cops and bad cops. But it feels far less not like you could sit there and say, oh, hey, I'm going to do this thing where you're struggling with who you sympathize with. But it it feels very natural and not forced at all. Did you do that consciously to have that <laughs> that kind of? I totally didn't is the funny oh, thing. Oh, no kidding. So I'm glad it worked. Well, no. I knew Ray. Who's your lead detective on this, Ray Bruzo. Right. Yeah. So Ray is the narcotics officer played by James Badgedale. And I knew that he would be sort of polarizing, right? Like he does pretty shitty things. Yeah, he sucks. I mean, he kind of sucks. Yeah. 
he kind of sucks. But then I think you kind of are rooting for him with Renee. I think people fall into the romance of it and are rooting for them. And I think you, I think he's fun to watch, but yeah, it was very conscious that he was not a good guy. Um, what I've been surprised about is when I read like commentary about Jackie is I don't even think she's that much of a mess because I was kind of, I was a mess in my twenties. And so to me, she's just like kind of like a person, but so many people are like unsympathetic to her brand of messiness. So I'm like, I'm always like, Oh, that, oh I didn't really intend for that to happen. But, but I think thank God that Monica Raymond is such a good actress that you're, you can't keep your eyes off her and you believe every single minute of it, whether or not you're frustrated that she didn't pull her shit together in time to do what she needed to do. Yeah. Why do you think Monica, she just, she's so believable in this character. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it doesn't, it, again, it none, there's just so many parts of this that never feel forced, which is why I like it so much. Why do you think it's so believable for her? Um, you know, I mean, she'll say she, well, she's an incredible actress. She went to Juilliard. She's just like, she's so technical. Like literally if you give her a note, which I very rarely do because you don't need to, but if you do, you like see her, like take a minute. And in my mind, it's like the little ping pong. It's like going through and like hitting off some things in her brain and then like out pops a take. It's like the exact thing you were looking for or the, even the thing that you didn't even know that was what the note was really about. Like she can just do it. Like she's just really... I just think she's an amazing actress, but she's also, you know, she was hungry for this role. She'd been on those Chicago show for so long and she wanted to do something different, something messy. She's queer in real life. She was excited to play, you know, represent her peeps and like do something really messy and different. And um, so she, she just came in and like crushed it. I really love, and I, I, I'm pretty sure you wrote the line because it's in the pilot, but when she, her character meets Ray, so she's seen the dead body. And he's kind of sizing her up because he's trying to figure out what her deal is. But she explains it so in such a formal way where she's like, well, I'm law enforcement, fishery service. And then he just says, there's like, oh, didn't you guys have like a bunch of people smuggling drugs in? And he just looks, she just looks at him like, hey, asshole, it was 40 years ago. Like, shut the fuck up. Right. And you could so easily could have just said, hey, shut the fuck up to like start the animosity. But it was such a killer line because she didn't have to say fuck off. She was saying it in a way. It was like, are you seriously bringing up the shit from 40 years ago? And it's like the end of the scene. And I thought that line was so perfect to kind of like sent, set the foundation for those two that are going to have this back and forth the whole first season. Well, thank you. Yes, I did write that. That's a good line. line. A very good line. Um, <laughs> all right. So pilots. I, I feel like um, everybody's in a rush in the first few minutes to grab everybody's attention. Like that seems to be another like billions. I was kind of joke. I go. Once you see Paul Giamatti being pissed on a few minutes into the beginning of Billions, you're like, okay, here we go. Like guys being urinated on. So right. buckle up. Um, you, yeah. we, we start, and for those that, you know, I, I, this is the spoiler alert part of this, but um, immediately somebody's killed and it kind of sets up everything for season one. But you have Monica's character like already going to rehab by episode two and i thought oh well and then again i could like clearly she's gonna fuck up again but uh -huh. did you have a hard time with how quickly you wanted to try to have her turn her life around or was that knowing that the way the stories go is as you said this isn't always a straight line here for sobriety um i, I almost right. felt like in a way i was like man they already are going here with this beat this feels really early but now it makes sense 
Um, well, I always knew that, you know, somebody said once like this, this show was a Trojan horse because you're actually doing like a character study of a lady getting sober, but like you're sneaking it in with a crime story. Um, so I always knew that the kind of her investigation and her sobriety were like going to do that the whole season and like that one would affect the other. Um, but my original idea of the pilot, and I think because I've worked in network television, was that J Jackie and Ray had to be teamed up by the end of the pilot. And there was a version of the outline where that happens. Like at the end of the pilot, she's like, I've figured it out. Let me join your team and I'll tell you. <laughs> And, I'm just glad um, you didn't do that. And, you know what I mean? I mean, it, it I sort know, of happened, but it's right? so much more organic the way that you do it, where you could yeah. see notes, somebody saying, no, they have to be in like more scenes together because they're like, I think 20 yeah. minutes before we even meet Ray. And I was like, that's cool. Like, I like that we haven't met yeah. Ray yet, but sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. Yeah, no, it's fine. I couldn't, my friend Molly, who was a writer on the staff, but I was friends with her before. And she, I joke, cause like in the first version of the script, like I was going to have Jackie find a TBD fish clue at the crime scene that at the end she figures out and tells Ray. And I, I was like, Molly, we need to come over. We're going to figure out the TBD fish clue. And like, so she still breaks my balls about TBD fish clue. Cause I never could come up with it. Cause it's the wrong idea. You know what I mean? And then when I just was like, wait, no, this is about her getting sober. Like she just goes to rehab at the end. That's what it is. Um, and it, it, I think it makes the show feel different because you're like, Oh, it's not a hundred percent just a crime procedural. There's, you know, a big part of it is this emotional arc that she goes through. Um, but yeah, it is. It's a little hanky. Like, it's not what you're expecting in terms of the crime. But um, yeah. Did you have a rule being from Mass about people trying to do the accent? Yeah. So Rachel Morrison and I, who's the director of the pilot, she's also from Cambridge. Um, we were kind of like, no one's doing accents. Like, if they can do it. If they come in and, and they show they can just nail it or they're from there, we'll let them. But like nobody else sh should try. And then you find out that like every actor just wants to do a Boston accent. And it's so hard. Like you just can't. Like there was a guy I go, where are you from in real life? He goes, Colorado. I go, great. Just give me your best Colorado accent. Like I, you don't need to do it. And then like the second I left set, he did it. But like I ended up kind of falling in love with it because it's an attitude as much as anything. And so it does help some of their performances. Um, so I kind of, you I seem so frustrated right now. I, I actually feel like your facial expressions, like I'm getting the real honesty out of you more so than your words. Cause you're like, yeah, I know, man, like I get it because what you could always yeah. tell an actor to be like, Hey, it actually skips different pockets geographically. It just does. There's certain yes. towns that just don't have it. Yeah. And you're from that town. There yeah. you go. That's your out. You're like, you're from, you're from Barnstable. You're good. Yeah, I know. Um, I actually thought we did. I If I compare it to some large budget movies with some big name actors who tanked the accent, I think we did pretty good. Are you talking Perfect Storm right now? No, I'm talking about Black Mass. Black Mass was not good. 13 Days, Costner is another one. Um, I've told the story I before because I don't want to. I'll share it with you. But we had Wahlberg in doing... Um, the marathon movie promo when I was back at ESPN and I just asked him, I'm like, what's your rule in the accent? He goes, I'm adamant about it. Like you get one shot at it. And as soon as I know you can't do it, I just tell you, you can't do it. But I also think Wahlberg can kind of like 
get away with it a little bit more. But then I was giving him shit right. about somebody else's accent. I was like, well, you didn't say it to this guy. And he just gave me this look like this big smile going, I couldn't say it to that guy. Cause he's the guy's a monster. Right, you know? right. He's just, so it is, yeah. it is funny though. Cause everybody, if you're an actor or performer your whole life, you're like, Oh, I'll figure this out. I still can't believe how yeah. many English people are so great with the American thing. Like that must be just a layup for them because it's, there's so many people. I'm like, wait, that guy's English too. Like what the hell's going on? But yeah. no, I don't, I don't think it's, I, I'm not bringing it up, Rebecca, because I think it's bad. I just think it's always really interesting as somebody from no, the no. It yeah. was, it was funny because I really did break my own rule. Like I, you know, you just you get swept up, and you're like, this it's making this guy so happy to drop his R's. Who am I to tell him not to? I'm just gonna do it, you know? I mean, Jackie doesn't do it. Like most of the characters don't do it. Junior, I thought did a great. Job junior does a subtle. very good job it's not every word that's yeah. what i always try to explain to everybody is anybody that tries to do every word it's like no that's not that's not what it is you're fucking it up yeah um okay so if uh if we look back at the first season actually you know what i want to ask this quick how did provincetown feel about this because it's actually not do you film most of this on long island and then do some scenery most of it. okay yeah. all right yeah did provincetown care then because i mean if it's not shot there maybe they don't care i don't know yeah no well we had a very hard time getting them to let us come there that was very contentious because we wanted to come after memorial day um and the chief of police particularly had a big problem with us um and it ended up going to like i'm gonna get the naming like the town selectmen vote and it and we won like three to two um and there was a filmmaker there who's actually she was the producer of the HBO documentary, um, Heroin Cape Cod, which was hugely influential. And she lives there and she fought really hard for us and got people on board, um, Lise King. And uh, but yeah, but then we got there and like, it was still cold when we got there. I was wearing like my North Face and there was nobody there the first week. I mean, it was like, it was fine. And we followed the rules. And I think, and I think mostly people were happy to have money coming in and people and something exciting and like you know the carnival scene like all those extras came out i mean i think ultimately they want to have a good time and have industry in their city so i think it worked out fine but it was tricky and then i i think the response that i've gotten from people on the cape like i was terrified i was like i am not i can't go back there like they're gonna fucking hate me um but i've gotten so much i mean i've gotten a few like really stank dms like you're ruining my town but like i've gotten i've seen so much commentary about like if they just got into the show and you know there is a obviously it's a little exaggerated for television the sort of level of the crime but i mean there is that shit going on there and i think a lot of people recognize the the you know creative license but also that it's based in a reality so i I, i've actually been very pleased with the response from people there yeah because it doesn't it doesn't like the lead up i was like oh wow are they going to do this like wow cape cape is the mess um and it doesn't really come off that way it doesn't even though i try to explain to people like yeah the winner is a little different now i don't know the full i don't know the end of season one yet um so I'll, i'll just i think somebody might have sent me some of the the, the final episodes, but I wanted to wait. I just was kind of looking forward to the routine okay. instead of binging. Cause I actually feel like a lot yeah. of these shows lose, uh, just the way we binge now, I, I think it kind of screws up the way we process shows. Like so they're not written to be huh. binged still. Like no one's, I, why would you want to write something and be like, okay, now I know this person's going to watch six straight hours of this, this show. Um, so it's right. almost like it doesn't breathe enough. And so I've, I've kind of wanted to wait it out. 
when you do something like this and it's successful, um, and like everybody, I mean, whenever you're pitching the show, it, it like one of the first questions is like, what's season three, what's season four mm-hmm. now that it's worked, like how far in advance have you thought out the rest of this? Because that I would think is, is the part where it gets a little scary. Cause you're like, all right, we told this great yeah. Cape story. Now what are we doing in season two? Like they go right. to, they go to well, born. Season two is written. I'll That's tell good. You. So, um, I feel pretty good about that one. Season three. Knockwood, there is one. I I will have to figure that shit out. I don't It's a know. good problem. But you know, it's yeah, exactly. Um, but it's more of this. I mean, it's funny because I did I remember when we were pitching it and I was like, Yeah, what is season two? And like, does she become a cop? Does she move to Boston and go to the academy? Is it like, you know, her climbing up those ropes and like, you know, army crawling? You know, and then Christiane again at JVTV was like, no, it's like Mad Men. What's season two of Mad Men? It's more Mad Men. Like, it's the same drama. It's the same players. It's just, and I was like, oh, yeah. I don't need to like reinvent the wheel every season. It's it's an ongoing story of these people's lives. Yeah, I, I think um, whatever, whatever kind of gets scary. Like if you were to say, you know, the elevator pitch of this, it's like, okay, it's a murder, but it's this drug crew, but then there's a guy in jail behind it all. The cop is kind of dirty. He's dating the stripper that's with the guy that's behind bars who's orchestrating all this. And by the way, we have a gay fisheries person who's already in and out of rehab as a time. You're like, holy shit. But it it feels yeah. like you have to have all that stuff now. Like you have to make it so layered that <laughs> you go like, well, how the hell, like, how do, how do I top that? Like, how do I add to that where now right. it's, it's like, it never feels like it can go in reverse story-wise and the stakes and the risks that you're taking. Right. The good thing that I found for writing season two is that like, hopefully if we, if I did my job right season one, you really care about these characters and you're really curious and excited to see where they'll go next. So I mean, because I used to write for The Mentalist, and so I don't know if you ever saw that show, but, like, the way it worked was we'd sit around a room and be like, what would be fun to watch The Mentalist do? I'm like, oh, I want to see him go bowling. And then we would, like, break a story around him bowling. So, like, not that it's the same thing, but, like, do you want to see Jackie in a committed relationship? Like, what does that look like? You know, you've never seen that. Or, like, you want to see Ray doing something? You know, I don't want to spoil anything, but, like, you get invested in the characters to where them doing different sort of emotional things and real life things feels exciting i'm making the season two sound so boring right now like no i you know what this isn't even fair i haven't seen the end of season one and i'm asking like oh do you have enough do you have enough conflict for season two so i didn't really do you any favors yeah there's tons of conflict for season two wait till you watch the finale you'll see where a lot of things are going to be different season two um but yeah season two is 10 episodes of eight so yeah there's there's plenty plenty of stuff do you think anybody's gonna do a season where there's everyone's wearing masks like who's gonna take the covid storyline on and just do masks for everybody i think the medical shows will but i read somewhere that like all the medical shows are like throwing out everything they had and there's gonna be so many bad mask storylines in television Oh, terrible. Yeah, I'm actually debating. The season two takes place in the fall of 2019. So you're just going to miss it. it. You're just going to miss it. So we're doing a winter thing then. So that's season two. Yes. See, the great thing, too, is you have a highway on the Cape. 
So if you have any storylines that are, you could be like, well, they can at least get on a highway and go somewhere else. Yeah. Perfect. There you go. Uh, the finale yeah. is this Sunday on stars. Yep. Mm-hmm. And all right, look, I hope you had fun. I, I really enjoy the show. I know how hard this is and, and how much work you put into it. So thanks for taking the time, Rebecca. Thank you so much for watching and inviting me on. I'm really happy that I'm glad that you as a Martha Vineyard guy is into it. That means a lot. So, and we you. hated Provincetown anyway, growing up because they're a big rival in basketball. So, you know, oh, there yeah. you go. You weren't going to offend us. I'm just kidding. Fuck them. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hopefully uh, you'll check it out. Go back and on demand some of that stuff. If you have stars, uh, because I really like the show. So trust me on this one. We have some people asking to do a Yellowstone recap. Um, I don't know. I guess I could. I just finished up David McCullough's Panama Canal book. I don't know that I want to recap it because I just finished it and it's good. It's not my favorite book ever because it has some slow moments when you're like 50 pages of mosquitoes. You're like, okay. Although the way they took care of the yellow fever, you ever get the yellow fever, Kyle? I don't think so. Any STDs, anything like that? Mono. Mono. And they call that the kissing disease. Yeah. Um, that's an old school reference, but I, uh, I didn't know that much about the yellow fever, but what they did down there in Panama. So I, I guess I could recap it. There's a guy, Noah, who works at the ringer. He and I were talking, um, this past week and he was like, I love your history recaps more than anything. Like they wanted me to do a history recap pod, but I also know what's going to happen is that if I really bill it as a side project where I read a book and then once a month, just do a 30 minute summary of it. You think NBA Twitter's rough? You think Rockets people are? You think tax bracket Twitter's tough? Um, Wait until you get into historical recap Twitter. Like, hey, that's not the hey treaty, dickhead. That was a revised edition treaty, which meant that all cargo was taxable. You know, I don't know if I want to deal with that. I don't. I'm not a history expert. I just like reading books about it. So, um I don't know, TBD on that one. Because then I also, to do it right, I know what I'll do, Kyle, is I'll sit there in my dining room and I will open the page to page one and I'll start flicking through again, trying to outline, do like a nice written out timeline of the best way to properly recap it. And I don't know if I want to do that. I definitely didn't want to do it with Rockefeller because that was that was even longer. Did I, I lose you? a one-off on like a book that you know is going to crush. I should have done it with Mayflower Philbrick, but I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know. That that one that book is is probably my favorite history book. Uh, you know what? I'm going to do with Philbrick right now. I'll do Yorktown. I'll do Yorktown, Washington, boats, prestige worldwide. I'll uh, I'll recap that one because it's a shorter book, and Philbrick kind of gets to it a little bit quicker than Chernow and McCullough do, which is you know just a style thing. Um. But that's that's what we're going to do. All right. Enough of this life advice. We got to come up with um, some sort of sounder for life advice. Can we do that, Kyle? I'm going to send you something. I'm going to send you you take a shot in the dark. or you going to send me something? No, do you know, go to my go to. We'll edit this in after. So whenever we right before we read the first life advice, I want you to always play Ben Affleck's speech in Boiler Room to the kids where he's like, I'm a millionaire. But the part where he throws his car keys, he's like Cabriolet. All right, I'll get on it. Yeah, but to have the car key line in there more so than any of the other stuff. Okay. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? 
I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. All right, now I'm motivated. Okay, this is, um, we're going to leave some names out of here. This is a tough one. This one bummed me out just as I read it. And it got sent late at night, or it got sent early in the morning, maybe early in the morning. You always wonder when you're getting 3.30 a.m. emails, you go, "Uh uh-oh. Like, if you're emailing Kyle on the Life Advice feed at 3.30 in the morning, um, you're not going to get the help you need, probably. Okay, but this looks like a 6.30 in the morning. So this was just dominating the guy's day. He woke up. We're going to leave names out of this. You're a sports guy. So here, here's the email. You're a sports guy. Here are my stats. I'm 33. I work for my father, a family's pizza place started by his father. I'm very single. I know what you're thinking already. Probably fat, unmotivated, has a no-show job and rides his dad's coattails. Um, <laughs> wow. You, you're like, you went like bunny rabbit on us at the end of eight mile, you know? I am a fucking bum. I do live in a trailer with my mom. Um, I wasn't ready to think any of those things yet. When I think nepotism, I don't think pizza first, to be honest with you. I, pizza's not the, the first line of work where I go, you know where nepotism really pays off? It's in the fucking pizza business. All right. Um, this is true. Many of my counterparts in similar situations, but I, even at my most critical, wouldn't lump me in with them. All right. So a bit of an elitist at the pizza place. While I am unmarried, I do own a home. We're going to leave out the town because this gets pretty weird. I make a very reasonable wage. Uh, I put in nearly 60 hours a week. I'm also finishing up an 80,000-word manuscript about my favorite rock records and how I, as a millennial, came to love rock music, vinyl, uh, and the people who introduced me to the bands I love. Quarantine has not been idle time. I even managed to maintain my reasonable weight, 5'10", 212. Stocky. I'm going to... I'm going to categorize you as stocky. Despite losing access to the gym and working with pizza all day, I'm a little rough around the edges, but not the typical slob whose father owns a pizza joint. I feel like the father-son pizza duos are just getting shit on. The whole the whole concept of them are getting dumped. But here's a couple of things I'm noticing in this paragraph. Very self-aware. He is obviously smart. Just sentence structure alone, I've noticed some things because I'm only getting worse at writing sentences, which is not great if you're a writer. Um... And then in his spare time, just banging out manuscripts on the history of rock music and what it means to them. So this guy is smart. He works hard. He's stocky. He's not fat. But I think fat for him is like just an extra in the professional kind of. And you know what? All right. So here, let's get to his problem. Because it's not Senate structure at all. I would say, hey, you're good. You don't need me. Here's my problem. I've fallen in love with one of my dad's employees. Uh oh. I thought when I first read that sentence, it said I, I fall in love with one of my dads, and I went, "What? Like that's great. You should have a lot of love at home." Um, but no, his dad's employees. Like I got hit by the thunderbolt, like Michael Corleone did when he first said uh, when he first saw Apollonia. In love, she's twenty. I'm fucked. We've engaged in mild flirting. She's been to my house for social reasons before, and we've uh, had really in-depth conversations because she's incredibly capable of them. Ah, this guy's screwed. My mood is lifted when she arrives, and when she smiles at me, it's the best part of my day. I hate it. In a moment of weakness, I sort of profess these feelings to her, creating an awkward situation where I had to self-report on to my dad 
our boss for making her feel uncomfortable. Oh, my God. I got to be honest. I read the first paragraph. I was like, oh, okay. And then the second line, I was like, this is good. I didn't read the rest of this email yet. Okay. So let's just rewind there. In a moment of weakness, I sort of professed these feelings to her, creating an awkward situation where I had to self-report on myself to my dad for making her feel uncomfortable. He's really self-aware. You're right. Yeah. Um, then I profusely apologized. She accepted my apology, but now things are awkward. Her coworkers, my subordinates in a way, now readily engage in gossip and the passing of misinformation about me. Because of this, I have no ally in the room there. I'm isolated on an island and I have to see her five times a week. I'm peerless because everyone's either 10 years younger or 25 years older. I'm also the number two guy in the company. What's worse is I'm forced to deal with the dread of excitement when she's about to walk through the door and the sheepishness of nervousness every minute we're around each other. My friends think I'm a moron. My father's disappointed in me and my house is still without the warming presence of a female um this went from great sentence structure to self-awareness to a tad creepy uh you said on the pod with bill in april quote if you aren't doing the thing you've been putting off right now during all this shit then you aren't ever going to do it i started to kick into high gear on my book because of that advice and i'm confident i will find a publisher i know you have something good for me here okay um yeah well good luck on the book this one's tough, man, because I don't want to be insensitive to the work part of this where, you know, it's also a pizza place. So it's not like she works in a different department. It's a massive corporation. So you're going to be around her all the time and you like her. Um, but the number one thing is you can't you can't make her feel uncomfortable. Right. So it sounds like she's accepted the apology and now you're good. But I think the only way. uh to really solve this is you should actually organize some sort of social gathering. Like, I don't know what their acceptance of you is now, if it's just some funny thing that happened, or if they're like, this is the creepy guy who works for the boss and we don't like being around him. I don't have the answers to these things, but I would hope, um, as long as this has only been just, Hey, I kind of like you. And she was like, peace, you're 33. I'm 20. Um, it's not happening that maybe you could just do a friend zone uh, maybe not a pizza party because you guys are on pizza a lot, but do something where everybody's in the same. So they get to see you away from the place, not at your place, but like a social gathering where everybody gets together and maybe even poke fun at yourself a little bit and just try to move past this. Um, that would be probably the best thing I can do. But obviously, I'm I'm dancing here a little bit because I don't really know how far um, the weirdness got to the point where you had a self-report on yourself to your dad because your dad's sort of HR and owns the company. Anyway, good luck with that book and, you know, maybe get on a dating app. Somebody who really likes rock music. All right. That's this week's podcast. We will be back next week. Please subscribe, rate and review the Ryan Russillo podcast, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Have a great weekend, everyone.